November may seem like a strange time to be thinking about the resurrection of Jesus. We're so used to hearing the account of Jesus' resurrection in the springtime when the leaves are coming out and everything is being made new. The weather's getting warmer. Well, now the leaves are changing and they're falling. And the weather's getting colder and the days are becoming darker. But I think that it's good that we hear about the resurrection when we get some distance from the cultural distractions of bunnies and colored eggs and hams on sale at Dan's. And maybe symbolically it's good for us to focus on the resurrection when creation is in death mode, if you would, instead of the coming life of spring. Resurrection is an all-year event for Christians. Christians have gathered to worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, according to Hebrew Jewish time, ever since Christ rose. And every week, we gather to worship Jesus on Sunday. And every week we do that, we're celebrating the resurrection. Every week, all year long. And Christians need to always be living in the resurrection. So as we go through the final two chapters now of John in this month, This morning, we come to the central event of the Christian faith, the high point of our hope, and the very event that all of our belief hangs on. What happened on that morning? Each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have varying details in their accounts of what happened that morning. And the early Christians and those who copied those accounts by hand for others to read as years went on, never, never tried to harmonize the details. You notice they never tried to clean it up so that all the details agree, but they left the four different accounts just as they are. You see, this is not public relations. Earl Palmer, the preacher, whose commentary on the Gospel of John is called the Intimate Gospel, said, Gospels are witness documents written to express truthfully what the writers themselves saw or heard from other witnesses to be the event as it really happened. According to John, this is what happened. On the first day of the week, while it was still very early in the morning, it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, went to the tomb where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had buried Jesus. Now, there are a few Marys in the Gospels. There's more than one. This Mary, Mary Magdalene, is mentioned first in every listing of Jesus' female disciples. It may be that she was the leader of a group of women who we hear of in the Gospels who served and followed Jesus throughout his ministry. Now, Magdalene is not her last name. It stands for where she came from, the area of Magdala. And she is the number one witness to the resurrection in all four Gospels. That is important. A woman becomes the first to witness, and really the first to tell, that Jesus is alive and has been seen. Mary sees the stone of the tomb has been removed, and she panics. 
And she runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple and says they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and they don't know where they have put him. Now, Mary does not know for a fact that has happened, does she? And as we find out, that is not the fact of what has happened. She is only trying to make sense of something that is totally unanticipated, totally unexpected. Part of the power of the resurrection is that no one expected this. No one saw it coming. No one imagined it would happen. Well, Mary runs to Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Who is this other disciple? We read of this other or another disciple in other places in John. And historically, most readers think and believe this was John himself. Although we're not told for sure. One of the curious things is that this disciple is always mentioned in relationship to Peter. Always in relationship to Peter. Notice in John 20, both start running to the tomb. But who gets there first? We are specifically told that the other disciple whom Jesus loved gets to the tomb first. And he is indeed the disciple that Jesus loved. As if maybe Jesus, he had some kind of special connection, some kind of favor with Jesus. Why would he call himself this? In the upper room, we go back to the upper room. It was Peter who had to ask this other disciple who Jesus meant when he said he would be betrayed. It was Peter who could only get into the trial of Jesus because of another disciple, as if that other disciple could pull the strings and really knew how to get into places like this. Was John jealous of Peter? Did he want to send the subtle message? Hey, I know Peter was the big preacher at Pentecost and all. And I, Jesus said, would build his church on that rock. But I was really the one Jesus loved best, and I had a special and close connection with him. Peter wasn't even as fast as I was. I got to the tomb first. It's almost comical, isn't it? Well, while the other disciple gets there first, Peter is the first one to actually go in to the tomb. And there is a detailed attention given to those linen wrappings. Peter sees the linen clothes in which Jesus had been wrapped just lying there. But the cloth that had encased Jesus' head was not with the rest of the wrappings. It was folded up neatly by itself. Why the attention to this? Because it is unlikely that grave robbers would spend any time folding linens nice and neat if the body had been stolen. It says that the other disciple, who we are again meant, reminded, he got there first. It says he saw this and believed, although they still did not understand the scripture that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Here, there is belief, but it's still not total understanding. And that's consistent with all the gospel accounts. An empty tomb does not produce resurrection faith. Nor does a resurrection necessarily produce resurrection faith. So far off the map, so absolutely out of our experience is this, that understanding might come in stages or maybe at a later time because there's nothing to prepare us for this. I meet regularly with our 11 o'clock music leader, Jason Stevens. Those of you who've been to the 11 o'clock service, he does a beautiful job, very gifted in music and 
and leading us in that time. And we were talking a couple weeks ago about this Sunday and the music that we would choose to accompany the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And I know what, Jesus, what, what Jason meant, but he said, uh, so just do the typical resurrection stuff, right? And I know what he meant, but it struck me as I thought about it that typical and resurrection don't go together. Belief and coming to terms with resurrection, it can take some time, some searching, some wondering. It did for those disciples and those first witnesses. Peter and the other disciple go home. Mary Magdalene stays. She is crying. She's upset, confused, and maybe scared. If that is you right now, if that's you right now in your life, hang with the Magdalene. I heard someone say once that if you are in crisis, don't quit. Don't run away. God, God might be ready to show you something. Mary does not leave the place of crisis. She is erect but she is still there. Is Mary showing us what real discipleship is all about? Sticking it out, staying right there, even if it all seems to be coming apart and it doesn't make any sense. As she is crying, she looks into the tomb and she sees two angels. I wonder why Peter and those other disciples didn't see angels in there. Was it that the angels have come since or do they just not have the eye of Mary Magdalene? The angels ask why she's crying, and she repeats what she imagines to be the problem, that they have taken away her Lord's body, and she doesn't know where they have taken him. How many times in our worst moments do we imagine Jesus to be gone, and yet he is closer and he is more alive than we even know, particularly as we're searching for answers, which is what Mary is doing. The reality of Jesus' presence is not always based on whether we see him or not, because we don't see it all. Mary turns around. She sees a man standing there. It is Jesus himself, but she imagines him to be the gardener. And Jesus asks her an important question. Who is it you're looking for? Boy, that's the question to each one of us. Who is it? You're looking for. Not what are you looking for, but who are you looking for? You see, most people are looking for the what in their life. God's truth is not revealed in a what. No, God's truth is revealed in a who, in the living person, in the person of Jesus the Christ. Mary begs of the man she thinks is the gardener to tell her where the body has been taken. And then Jesus speaks her name, Mary. And when he does, Mary recognizes Jesus. Jesus said, the shepherd knows his sheep by name. And it was speaking her name, not the empty tomb, not seeing angels, not even seeing Jesus himself at first that produced recognition and faith for Mary. It was hearing her name from Jesus. That was the moment of recognition. Mary responds, Rabboni, 
which means rabbi, which means teacher. Why not Lord? Why not Savior? Why not Son of God? Because this isn't public relations. We're not making up a story. This is how Mary would have addressed and been accustomed to addressing her teacher, Rabboni, when they were together before. And when Jesus tells Mary not to hold on to him, the sense is this, not that she doesn't, he doesn't want to be touched, but he doesn't want her to keep on holding to him. Jesus welcomes her embrace of him. He is not untouchable. He is, is risen in the body, and he's, as he will show Thomas a little later and very soon, he can be touched. But there is a message to be declared. There is mission to be done. So he asks her to let go for now. She needs to go back and tell his brothers. Notice how he refers to the disciples who abandoned him, let him down, and turned their backs on him. His brothers. That he's alive and that she has seen him. And Mary goes back to the other disciples and tells them, I have seen the Lord. That is what John tells us happened that morning. Let me briefly give three quick reasons why I believe the resurrection really happened. First of all, we are given women as the primary witnesses to the resurrection. The testimony of a woman was not valid in a court of law, nor in any circumstances at this time. Women had such a low place in society that their word could not be trusted. If the gospel writers were making all this up, you would not have women as the witnesses. And by the way, are not women the first preachers of the gospel? I have seen the Lord. Short sermon, but it's the gospel. Second reason. The second thing that convicts me of the resurrection is that the tomb of Jesus was never used as a place of worship. It was very common in New Testament times for the tomb of a revered rabbi or a prophet to become a place of worship from his disciples. This never happened with Jesus. Surely, if that tomb still held his body, his followers would have made it a high holy place. Never happened. And third, Jesus' followers began spreading this message that he had risen that he was the exalted Lord and that he was God. Now, why would you talk about a dead rabbi as God? Why would they pray to and worship him if he was dead? Why would they risk their lives and even die for that message that Christ was raised and seen alive if indeed it didn't happen? There are other reasons, I think, to believe the resurrection really happened, but these are just three, just three that convict me. But the resurrection is not just something that happened, past tense. It is something that is happening. It's not just some Christian doctrine to be brought out once a year for us to remember. It is something to be continually lived. God's power has been unleashed in this universe. Brennan Manning, Catholic, former Catholic priest, recovering alcoholic, Christian writer, said, the resurrection of Jesus must be experienced as more than a historical event. Otherwise, we are robbed of the impact on the present. A.W. Tozer said, it is Satan's greatest strategy to get people to celebrate the resurrection rather than experience it. 
Resurrection is something to be lived. Well, how does that work? Well, let's start at the end and work backwards, okay? First, resurrection must matter for my death. Everyone here today will die. Science and medicine have thought of and striven to uh, strive to think of ways to stave off death, to make it not happen, to conquer it to no avail. The funeral business continues to have incredible, consistent business. It's amazing. The question Christianity asks is, given this, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the one in whom you need to place yourself, in whose hand you need to place yourself, and whose hand you need to take in order to get beyond your certain death and to that place of perfect peace, perfect love, perfect joy that God says he is preparing for all those who love him and belong to him. Someone has gone through death and defeated it. You know, there are many good and wonderful things in all religions. But I don't want a faith that merely gives me some temporary nice thoughts and some lovely ways to live my life. Give me someone who has proved to be a match for death and that whole sway for all eternity. I only know of one faith that does that. Death will not have the last word for those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives are not done when they are done. But the resurrection is more than just a wonderful thought that we can all go to heaven. Because the first believers who saw Jesus didn't think of it that way. No, they didn't. They didn't just sit around waiting for the day they could be with the Lord and say, this is lovely. No, the first Christians had perhaps the most complete and the most aggressive moves of ministry to the poor and to the sick, as well as the most far-reaching ministry of proclamation and sharing the good news of God that has ever been seen since. They said everything is different now. And so how can we live in a different way? Because how we live here really matters. God has entered the world physically. He died physically. He has come back to life physically. God does not and will not tolerate death. Violence and death are on a time limit. There is more on the horizon. Therefore, this world and what we do must matter. Philip Yancey wrote that someday God will enlarge the miracle of Easter on a cosmic scale. That is why feeding the hungry and helping the sick and visiting the elderly and passing out Bibles and telling peoples of God's love and Christ's love really matter. And that is why we come to the house of the Lord every Sunday to remind ourselves that he rose and that contrary to what we see happening all around us, there is a new order. And we will live under that order. Paul writes in Romans that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And that life consists of offering ourselves, not as instruments of unrighteousness and wickedness and of sin, but as instruments of righteousness, of what God wants. When the risen Lord penetrates my life, I'm no longer myself, no longer living for myself. No longer living for my desires, for my happiness, for my appetite. Now I strive to live for what God wants.
And there is a way of living in this world that leads to death, and there's a way of living in this world that leads to life, according to God. I think one of the best statements of living resurrection is found in Paul's words to the Colossians. For he writes to them and he says, since then you have been raised with Christ. This event has touched, it's impacted our lives. He says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is now hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger and rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And then he says this, and I'd like us to join in this together. He closes these words to the Colossians. Would you read these with me? Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. All because Jesus has been raised from the dead, and a new power is moving in this world, and we have been raised with Christ. Let's pray. God, we not only thank you for the empty tomb, but we thank you that Jesus has been seen and for the declaration and the witness of that, even to the pain, even to the death of those who stood faithful. God, may we not only know the resurrection as something in the past, but as something we're living in now. Help us to live it in Jesus' name. Amen.